This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, we're going to be talking about the management of chronic diseases, and I think we're also going to be just talking about you know, the role of the patient in all of this and where the patient fits in and um, what the doctor-patient relationship ideally should be. Um, so I'm very excited about the panel that I have on stage with me. I will quickly just introduce them and then um, they'll talk a little bit more about the work that they're doing right now and um, some new initiatives um, that they have going on. So to my left is Dr. Jordan Schlain, who is, among many other things, the founder and CEO of Health Loop. Not the CEO. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Just I'm sorry. Founder. Just founder. Okay. Um, and then to his left. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm a doctor most of the time. Okay. <laughs> and then to his left, we have Pat Kristen, who is the president and CEO um, of Hope Lab. And then to her left, we have uh, Dr. Nasser Petrovi, who is uh, the founder and CEO of Sanitas Inc. And then to his left, we have Dr. Peter Yu, who is the director of cancer research at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation and also the president-elect of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. So congratulations. Thank you. So um, it's a very impressive group. I'm very excited to speak with them. And like I said, I will then turn it to them to tell you a little bit more about the work that they're doing. Thank you. Um, so, so in healthcare, one of the most under-leveraged assets in the healthcare system is not a physical asset, it's an intangible asset, and it's called trust. Um, and so as a physician, and I'm in the room with the patient, the trust that exists there is that powerful. In fact, uh, Gallup polls show that people trust uh, firefighters at 95% pretty much countrywide, down to pharmacists, doctors, and nurses in the high 70%, and a lot of people down from there. And <clears throat> our healthcare system has been built on diagnosing and treating patients. And all the textbooks, all the clinical trials, pretty much all the money that's being spe- that has been spent from the beginning has been on how to diagnose and how to treat. The problem is, and then what? And so I'm trying to solve the and then what, which is once you leave the office, I don't know how you're doing. And, and you're not exactly sure because you're probably sick or you've been diagnosed with something, exactly what to expect, uh, what to know, and, and communicating back to me is hard. You have to call my office. So the current healthcare system is very reactive. You have to call into it or go into it. And it's also synchronous, meaning two people need to be on the phone at the same time or two people need to be in the office at the same time. So how do you make... So what I'm working on is trying to make healthcare proactive and asynchronous. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is in the, and I'll be brief, in the, in the concept of a movie, there are acts and there are scenes, there are actors, there are lines, and there are props. And when you're a patient and you're going to go through a movie, and so I had a patient with pneumonia, and I sent her home with my cell phone number and said, if you're not doing well, please call me. She didn't call me. She wound up, I got a phone call from the ER. She went in the ICU and uh, in, in respiratory distress and almost died. And I thought, why didn't she call me? I gave her my cell phone number. I made it super easy. And then I thought, shame on me, I didn't call her. I should have checked up on her, but that doesn't scale. And then I thought, she's never seen this pneumonia movie before, and she's sick. And because I've seen the pneumonia movie before many times, I kind of know what the, the recovery curve should look like for her. And if I had only known that on day three, she wasn't doing that well, I may have brought her back because it was the wrong diagnosis, it was the right diagnosis with the wrong medicine. The, the, I had no ability to course correct, and she had no ability to reach out to me because she was sick. So I built this technology that basically doctors write prescriptions, they send patients home, uh, which says, check your email. And the patient gets an email that says, I'd like to check in with you. The patient checks in, very simple, 
and it says, hey, here's what you need to know today. You're four days out. Here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Uh, and I want to know if you did this. And by the way, I want to ask you a few questions. And so we're creating, we're getting all this big data, but we filter it through some algorithms underneath the way they answer those questions to surface exceptions of who's not doing well or who's starting to wobble, who's about to go in the ditch, who's in the ditch, and who's not answering, who's not, who's not participating. Because ultimately, if I say to you, would you like the best probability of the best outcome the fastest? I'm guessing everyone's going to say yes. And I would say, well, this is the tool that helps you get there. So that's what I'm working on. That's great. Thank mm. you. All right, Pat. Beautiful, Jordan. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Hope Lab's work in the specific and then more broadly some work we're doing in resilience that might be quite applicable to you. So we design and adapt technology to improve the health and well-being of young people. One of the products that we've developed and released is called Remission. It's a video game for adolescents and young adults with cancer. The, the manner in which we uh, create our products uh, involves our, the patient population deeply in the design experience. So it's very patient-centric, really understanding, um, getting their feedback uh, in real time as game development is taking place. Uh, th that game is now um, broadly available, and what we found in uh, clinical trials with these kids, uh, kids with cancer um, who played the game, uh, did a much better job of adhering to their oral chemotherapy, oral antibiotics. Their self-efficacy went up. Not surprisingly, their cancer-related knowledge went up as well. So really exciting use of gameplay and technology to really um, put the this sense of power and control back in the hands of these kids. One of the things that we've appreciated as a result of design of several of our products, so we have a, a, these products for cancer. We also have some products looking at uh, physical activity in middle school age kids, a, a product called Zamzi. I'm not going to spend much time on that product here other than to say as a result of that work as well, also very successful. The kids who use Zamzi move 60% more than those who don't. Um, what we came to appreciate is one of the common themes between the, those products is uh, that the, the design has really unlocked resilience in these young people. And through increasing research and really understanding, well, what is it that we did? What did we bake into these experiences that has been so successful? We've come to appreciate this really powerful combination of three things, a sense of purpose, a sense of control, and a sense of connection. And to the extent you can really amplify those things, you end up really cultivating resilience in your patient population. So it's, it's really helped. So even in hearing Jordan describe what he's describing, you can imagine each of the places where he's intervening. So to, to reach out and to, and to make sure there's, there's deep connection with the patient, meaningful connection. It's not just tracking. Tracking is not connection. So it's meaningful connection. A sense of control, both for the physician. The physician has a sense of control or agency in the relationship. And also for the patient, that they understand what they can do, how they can take control of the situation as well. And then to stay on purpose. And the purpose may shift. And the purpose needs to be defined in a meaningful way by the patient. So purpose for someone may be, I've got to get through this treatment. Purpose may be, I've got to get to my kid's graduation. I want to be at my daughter's wedding. It's not for us to define that purpose. It's for them to define it. And the combination, that three-legged stool, ends up being phenomenally powerful in making them more resilient so that whatever is coming their way, whatever the disease is going to throw at them, they feel up to the challenge. And that in itself, as, as many of you know, um, particularly the clinicians in the room, is, is uh, an enormous advantage in treatment and in patient engagement. So we're really excited about that work, and I, I can talk more about that um, a little later in the panel. That's great. Thank you. My pleasure. Good afternoon. My name is Nasser Pratovi. I'm with a company called Sanitas. We started building a tool called Wallaho, which stands for Well at Home, 
to engage patients in their own care in partnership with their clinicians as well as their family. We just finished a clinical trial here at UCSD where we showed 77% reduction in readmissions for patients who were using the tool versus the ones who were not. And our goal is ultimately to improve patients' quality of life. We reduce costs, obviously, but patient quality of life is the most important element that we measure because at the end of the day, it's their lives. I'm also very proud to announce today a new product that we announced this morning at this conference called Family Healthware. All the focus of this conference and many conferences and 99% of our healthcare spending is on fixing the problem. Family Healthware is focused on preventing the problem because if you know that you have the genes or you have the genetic formation from your family to, be, to get cancer, you will do something about it way before that comes. So if you can go to familyhealthware.com, it's free tool, you register, you invite your family, the more members of your family come on, the more precise information we can give you about your genetic formation. It's a free genetic test, if you like. And then we give you tools how to deal with it. The fact that I have the risk of getting breast cancer doesn't help unless you tell me what am I supposed to do. So we give you the tools to prevent it. So this tool is focused on prevention, and we are hoping that by making it freely available to every hospital, to every corporation, and to every individual, we're going to prevent some of these diseases way before they come. That's great. Thank you. Great. Thank you uh, for letting me share some of your time this afternoon at this uh, very, very good conference. It's an excellent conference. Um, my name is Peter Yu. I'm president-elect of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Uh, that is the professional society for cancer doctors. Uh, we're about 33,000 of us in over 100 countries uh, from around the world. And um, uh, over the last two years, we've, we've looked ahead and said, what's on the far horizon? Uh, we did a little exercise and said, what do we think is, is happening in the next 20 years or so? What do we need to prepare for? What are the grand challenges? And, and we came up with three that have, have all surfaced uh, at this meeting already. Uh, one is what we call panomics or precision medicine, uh, molecular medicine, uh, the science that's driving this excitement that you heard about earlier this morning, and how we translate that into actual patient care. You know, the question was asked this morning, is this going to happen in five years or ten years, and, and, or is it one year, and, and pick a number, but how do we get it there faster? Whatever it is, how do we cut that estimate in half? Uh, another challenge is uh, affordability. Uh, the healthcare system is unaffordable, and we're just piling on with more expensive tests and drugs, and, and, and so how do we define value and how do we define quality? We think that translates into quality and value. Because if you don't know if something is good quality, then you don't know whether you've cut too deep. Uh, and if you don't know if something has value, you don't know whether it's worth doing. So you need to define what is quality of care uh, and, and what is the, the value that brings to the patient, to the patient experience that's already been talked about. Uh, and the third thing we're looking at is big data. Uh, this, this promise of all this information coming in as, as this nation develops a, a health digital infrastructure. Uh, how do we tap into that? Uh, and how do we break down the silos? Because it's, it's all there, but it's all compartmentalized. 
and how do we begin to, to break down the ecosystem and unite everything together? So if I have a product, and we don't really make products, <laughs> um, but we have a concept which is a, a model of something called a rapid learning healthcare system. Uh, the idea is that um, we learn maybe 4 or 5% of our cancer treatments come out of clinical trials. That's, that's the number we've been up against for, for decades now. Um, but there's, that means there's 96% of patient experiences that are not being used. They're not being harvested and not being mined. Uh, they are happening in the real world. Uh, and we're just ignoring that data as dirty data, fuzzy data, data that we don't collect. Um, but now with informatics, we have that ability to collect that data. And if we have the social will to share that data and not hold it to ourselves, thinking that there's some value that we don't want to give it away, that we can really begin to accelerate this process. So we've developed a model called the Rapid Learning Healthcare System. Uh, we didn't develop the model, but we developed the first component in medicine to actually embrace this concept from the Institute of Medicine uh, to try to use informatics to learn from that using the big data concepts. Uh, we prototyped this uh, over the last year or so. Uh, we uh, targeted breast cancer as a common disease. We were able to pull 170,000 medical charts of breast cancer patients to pull a data set, uh, begin to analyze how this could work. Um, and uh, after a year or so and a couple million dollars, decided that there, there, this was a big gamble. This was Dr. Mukherjee's big gamble. We don't know if it's working, but we want to be bold. We want to try this. Uh, and so today, actually, is the day we, we are announcing that we are going to go ahead with uh, and commit ourselves to, over the next five years, uh, developing that. Um, the federal government is still open. The White House uh, is having a, a, a session on big data today. Uh, the Office of uh, Science and <laughs> Technology Policy is running a, a, a big data meeting today. And uh, I've been told, and not there, obviously, but I've been told that they will talk about our, our project, which is called Cancer Link. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I would love um, to, to just hear from you about the relationship that, that your um, projects have with sort of the legacy infrastructure that's already there. Could you just explain to us a little bit about how you, you know, what the relationship is between what you're doing and what's already there and what the challenges of that might be and also the benefits of that? So, so I'll take the first crack at that since I'm, well, the, the two clinicians here were kind of knee deep in stuff, is technology was supposed to fix the healthcare system 10 years ago with the EMR, <clears throat> the electronic medical record. And um, basically they took a, a paper process and they turned it into a digital process. They didn't actually use technology, they just digitized paper, which wasn't really great. And, um, you know, as a result of that, EMRs um, are really cash registers. They were meant to do billing and, and they added a hard drive onto the, Thing. And so now the EMRs are really just cash registers with hard drives. Um, and then they said, well, patients need access to this. They created a PHR, um, which is a personal health record. That's kind of the other side of the EMR. A study came out recently that most, a lot of doctors these days are spending you know, up to 20% of their time looking at a computer screen instead of their patient, which, which is horrible. That's not, I think, what the intent of this technology was ever supposed to do, was remove humanity and insert digital stuff into the exam room. Um, so the way so our... our um, platform. Um, basically, every system that we talk to says, how does this fit into the hmm. EMR? And I said, you know, EMRs and PHRs end in the letter R, which stands for record. And they tell you what happened. They don't tell you what's happening. And so there aren't fields. There are no data fields in your system to, 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 to take into account what I'm gathering, which is what's happening with people every day. Um, so, you know, so it's been a challenge for us. So we've gone to these big EMR systems and said, Hey, we're the app that you need to make your thing better. And, you know, some people are very, um, amenable to creating ecosystems around their, their, their EMRs. Athena health is doing one 
And some other, uh, I think, green way is they're building this platform where you can build your app because doctors all have a different way they do things, and you, it's not a one-size-fits-all world. Um, but, but really the dream for us, and this is where we're working towards right now, is the, the largest uh, system is Epic, <clears throat> and there's Cerner and Allscripts and these other ones, is our goal, and we're working on this now, is to get inside the electronic medical record so that when you diagnose somebody with pneumonia and you put them on Leviquin, a, a loop, a feedback loop just starts. So it's, it's seamless into the system because really workflow to doctors is critical. If you jungle and mess up a workflow of a doctor, you've really made them even more inefficient. So we're trying to go right into the way they're using the technology today and really making that technology much more effective. So it's just a one-click enrollment in the feedback loop to close the loop of, of the illness through, between the visits. So that's, that's kind of our strategy, but we also have a number of other uh, people that want to use this that, that don't use electronic medical records. Right. So it's, it kind of solves their problem anyway. Well, with Wallaho, if there, are, there is an le- electronic medical record system, by the time you get home, we have already downloaded mm-hmm. your medical record system. Mm-hmm. We can look at the information there. I actually disagree. There's a lot of useful information in EMR that we extract the ICD codes. We know exactly what the patient has. So if the patient has stage 2 breast cancer, we don't bother them with information about stage 3 or stage 1 information we provide exactly the kind of information they need, and we build a dashboard specifically for that person. We talk about personalized medicine. Well, Google is not personalized medicine. If I go and Google uh, breast cancer stage two, I'm gonna get one million hits, which will take the rest of my life to read. So we try to build personalized information, personalized dashboard based on the electronic medical record system but augmented with the daily information that the electronic medical record system doesn't have. We talk a lot about devices here. Only 10% of people with heart failure in this country have good old blood pressure monitor in their home. So don't tell me that there are wireless blood pressure monitors. There are maybe 100 of them. And most of our patients don't have them. So we make it available for our patients to enter their own data, mostly about the, the way they are feeling, their side effects, and those information that's important. And if they have their blood pressure, absolutely, that's good information, but not everybody has it. Right. Okay. So two, uh, two, two, two examples, uh, one doctor, one patient-oriented. So um, you know, one of the questions that came up uh, was information overload. Then how, how is a doctor... Uh, going to keep up and be competent with so much information coming down the line. Uh, and one of the ways that could happen is called clinical decision support. So you have a computer system designed who knows the patient, knows the clinical situation, knows the question at hand, and before a decision is made, can provide insight to the doctors or, and the patient, saying these are possible courses of action, consider these things. Um, so how will you get those? Well, they're based on what we call guidelines. So all doctor societies create guidelines, which means we tell our members, in this situation, the literature, the knowledge, the evidence base suggests do this or do that in this situation. The, the problem in, in the old paper world is we waited laboriously until there were definitive clinical trials and evidence, and it was indisputable, and basically we were codifying what everybody already knew at that point. You know, which is kind of dumb, right? So, um, but we wanted to be perfect. So what we have to learn how to do is admit the obvious, which, was, which is we're not perfect, we never will be perfect, we never were perfect, uh, and just live with that and um, put out guidance 
even if we don't know all the answers. But we have to humbly say, we don't know all the answers. This is the answer we need to get. This is the data we need to find. And then iteratively improve our guidelines, improve our tools, uh, and, and that is how we will help physicians keep up. Uh, from the patient side, we need to have um, better recording of what the patient experience is. Uh, unfortunately, cancer is not curable in most cases. It's regrettable. We don't want it to be that way, but it is. And, and so there are painful choices. Uh, and we need to know what the patient's experience, what that nebulous thing called quality of life is. You know, what does it mean? What, what is the patient doing at home? And what is their performance status? Um, and we need to have ways for patients to give us that information. Now, at lunchtime, we had a discussion about PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, funded by the um, Affordable Care Act, about $300 million, I think, uh, to fund them, and they're beginning to look at this. Um, but I had a call with them a, a week or two ago, and, and we were talking about informatics, and I said, what are you doing? He says, well, you know, we think that the best we can do at this point, the best that the technology will support is telephone surveys. So that uh, the patient says, you know, press one if you're nauseated. Press three if you're having pain. You know, and and I said, you know, the technology is ready for more than that. And 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 they invited me to come to tell them about that next month. So having opened my mouth, now I have to tell them. But, but you know, I think that those are ways that we can move the ball forward um, with electronic records. You know, one of the experiences we had with technology, so ours is a little bit different because we have a, a game-based platform, so you can, if you have an iPhone or an Android phone right now, you could play Remission 2 Nanobot on your phone. You should. It's, it's actually a really great yeah, game. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that was challenging for us, when we developed the initial game, um, which was a PC-based game, and we were in hospitals all over the country, you know, you often hear about digital divides, and you often think about in the context of patients not having access to, to um, computers or access to the Internet or smartphones. We, we found horrible technology in a lot of the hospitals that we were in, um, and, and shockingly horrible. So it, it, it created um, some really interesting challenges in terms of both the experiences. Now, and again, this is adolescents and young adults, so predominantly we're working with teens, so that's a different patient population as well. But the need actually to be able to get something in their hands that's meaningful to them in a context that makes sense for them, so particularly if they were in a waiting room, long wait times, uh, something that that could um, be very engaging for them, and emotionally salient. And that would be the one final thing I would say. Data is incredibly important, incredibly powerful. We need to be making evidence-based decisions. But people do not change behavior based on data. They change behavior when something is emotionally salient to them, and and we, we um, run great risk of getting those two things backwards. And we do it all the time in the design, in the way we design technology, in the way we design systems. We think with just enough information, people will do the right thing. Well, you know, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic. We wouldn't have, you know, many of the problems we currently have if information were enough. So the other, I think, key thing about engaging people directly in the experience is you can really understand what makes the change that you're after that is in service to their well-being, what makes it emotionally salient to them. And then you can use the, the arsenal data you had available to support that emotional salience. And getting those in the right order, I think, is critical to good patient care and to, and to, and to deep engagement with your patient population. Yeah. Well, what, along those lines, I mean, how could that idea scale? You know, that's a question yeah. that comes up a lot at a conference like this, but really how, how could it? How could we change behaviors on a wide scale, um, you know, um, beyond sort of discrete projects? How could we actually get a sort of cultural change um, when it comes to patients' own ideas about their health and their empowerment when it comes to their health? 
Well, I think the advertising industry does this brilliantly. Hmm. You know, there. I, I think one of the things that happens in healthcare is we get very siloed, and then we we don't look up and look around and see. Well, there's there's dramatic behavior change that that is being incentivized all the time. Every time you pick up your phone, every time you turn on the television. So paying deep attention to how shifts take place, um, how memes move through the culture, uh, be, because of this. Uh, this design thinking, this involvement in what is emotionally salient that then elicits the behavior change we're after. And unfortunately, right now, that's often used for things that are actually not good for our health. Consumer. But there's no reason they couldn't be used for things that are actually quite pro-health and pro-social. We, we simply need to direct our attention and that interest in that way. There's you know huge amounts, millions and billions of dollars that in, in get invested in making sure you're buying the right car, or the right perfume, or the right shoes. Uh, if, if we had that that same interest, we could make some pretty dramatic shifts, I think. And we certainly see that with the way that video game technology has played out in our experience on a much smaller scale. What, what we find is that each individual is going to respond to something different. So early this year, with the help of a behavior economics uh, uh, professor here at UCSD, we devised different kinds of games and incentives. And it's amazing, a simple, very simple $100 gift a month where you have to fight for it, improve patient engagement by 300%. Wow. And it's still persisting nine months later. Yeah. There are other elements. There are some people who listen to their kids. There are others who mm-hmm. listen to their friends. Mm-hmm. So if we measure each individual what they're responding to and what they're not responding to, and then targeting those elements for behavior change, then that's going to happen. Because there's not, a, in our experience... There's not a single silver bullet. And we try to understand through the patient engagement process what is that they're responding to, what's not that they're responding to. It's a great question. I was speaking with a well-known behavioral uh, economist recently about incentives and motivational, intrinsic motivators and and extrinsic motivators. And and I was talking about a very specific problem I was trying to, to solve. And he said, hey, look, uh, intrinsic motivators and extrinsic motivators are the wrong way to think about this. And I thought, okay, <laughs> give me. And he said, it's really about choice architecture. He said, if you make something easy for somebody, if you make it easy at the time that they want to do it, they will do it. Mm. And, and so it's less about why they want to do it. I mean, it's, it's not, if the right motivation is kind of either intrinsic or extrinsic at some level, and you make it easy, they will do it. So it, it really kind of reframed my thinking about you know, this book Nudge and, right. and, and Drive and, and, and all these books that look at choice architecture is it matters. I mean, when you go to a store, they've nailed choice architecture. You go in there, they know what you're going to buy because they've designed the architecture of choice. So I, I think the way you get stuff to scale really is you've got to make it easy and you've got to meet them where they are. Okay. I would say, you know, so another way uh, of calling this, another vocabulary would be you know, patient preferences and patient values mm. and understanding what mm. those are. And I would just point out for the, in, in the cancer world, those, those values and preferences change constantly. Uh, you know, initially the patient is highly motivated to take the chemotherapy no matter what the side effects are. And after they've had it, maybe not so much so. So it's something that we need to capture and measure uh, and, and re-measure uh, because it changes. It's in flux. Okay. Uh, but it is influenceable. You know, I, one experience... I'm sorry, Jordan, go ahead. I was just really quickly... I, I call that preference-based medicine. I mean, we live in a world where evidence-based medicine is all the, the stuff. But really, when you get down to it, 
people, patients have preferences too, and we don't really bake them into account when we think about a treatment. I mean, I typically try to, when I see a patient, I'm like, hey, look, we could do this treatment, this one, or this one. Here's the risk-benefit ratio of each one of those aggressive, you know, cost, potential outcomes. And I let the patient kind of have a choice based on what matters to them. What do they care about? But we don't do that in medicine. I think that, that, your, that your point is, is well taken. We need to, like, have a preference-based medicine architecture or, or framework with which to let them enter the system and, and engage with it. I think this is a corollary to that. So this little story from our experience when we were de- developing remission. So we were in conversation with these um, teens with cancer. And uh, much like Peter is saying, you know, chemotherapy is horrible. They feel terrible. They don't want to do it. They don't want to take their meds. So as a result of the gameplay, what we realized we had done is that we had shifted their relationship to this thing that they hated doing to it becoming something that they could use to vanquish their disease. It really was, it then became a tool in their battle and and it shifted their psychology around it, which was really interesting. The other thing that we found was we were, we were told, um, you know, make sure you create a website because these kids will want to, you know, connect together, et cetera. And we actually talked to, and this is different for kid population, patient population. When we talked to the kids, like, we don't want to be identified with our cancer. We don't want, we want to go back and be a kid. You know, I want to be with my friends. I don't want to be constantly reminded that I have cancer. So what I love about remission is I can play the game when I'm in the waiting room or I can play it with my siblings when I'm having to deal with chemo. But then I just want to go back and I just want to be with my friends. I don't want to be identified in that way. So it's another great example of really understanding the preference of the patient population would cause you to design the technology in profoundly different ways. And I think that is a, in in that particular instance, was an age difference. I think if we'd been um, uh, working very closely with 40-year-old women with breast cancer, I think they would have had a very different reaction to sense of community. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. When we started our first clinical trial with heart failure patients, everybody said, why did you choose heart failure? Most of the patients are old. They're not going to engage. They're not going to, they don't want technology. Our best patients are people above 65. Hmm. I have patients who are in their late 80s. I love them because they have found every single spelling error on our side. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. They are engaged. They get up in the morning. They get engaged. They have the time, and they worry about their uh, health. And they're not afraid to talk to other people about their health. You're absolutely right. If they're kids, we had the same trial with, uh, in obesity here at UCSD. Zero percent participation in terms of engagement with other people. Mm-hmm. They were each in their own silo, but they didn't want to talk about their weight and what they're doing about it with other people. But heart failure, 65, 85, they want to engage because they're not ashamed of having heart failure. Mm-hmm. And they have the time. So it's, again, disease-specific, age-specific, not a single solution. You know, this is a a beautiful example because this purpose connection control that I was just talking about around resilience, a, a person that will be correcting spelling on the site, that actually is purposeful. So purpose can show up in these really interesting ways. They're improving something for others, and, and those opportunities are extraordinary. And so when you see something like that, the ability to affirm it and, and um, show that kind of gratitude for it, for the patient itself, creates this beautiful, virtuous cycle. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, along those lines, I mean, so we're talking about the patients, but also the, you know, the situations of the patients. And what would you ideally like to see when it comes to the sort of social network aspects of, of being a patient? What would you like to see in terms of family engagement, um, you know, reliance on friends, that kind of thing? What would be the ideal there? 
Well, it, it, you know, we named this thing Health Loop just because it was the feedback loop that was missing in healthcare. And then we thought, well, don't people want to be in the loop? With right. so so we've enabled a patient to enroll their you know so if uh, if someone's having sixty five year old woman's having surgery hip surgery in San Francisco she can enroll her son in Florida to be in the loop to see how she's progressing on her track and if she doesn't check in with the doctor the son gets notified hmm. that says your mom didn't check in could you check in on her yeah. so a lot of times in the hospital what you find is that people say hey doc is there anything I can do to help. And you're, and you say, well, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure, but just be there for your mom. You know, it's hard to articulate a very discrete set of functions for somebody to help and do, um, just because it's complex and it's a moving target. But what we've enabled is, is to let the patient enroll that social uh, network or the the people who love them. Um, one, so that's one way that, that we've thought about it, I'm actually now going to talk about our Zamzi product, um, which we're also using with young people with cancer <coughs> in an interesting trial right now in St. Jude's. But this is a small three-acid accelerometer. Kids can stick it in their pocket. They move around, keeps track of how much they move. The algorithms are actually um, designed to keep track of shorter bursts of kid movement. Uh, <laughs> and then that data gets uploaded, and it unlocks an experience for them online. So what was really interesting in the design of that particular um, experience and that particular product was that oftentimes obesity or sedentary behavior, there can be a lot of shame associated with it. So we got completely disinterested in weight and we got really interested in movement because everybody needs to move more. All of us need to move more. Families need to move more. And we designed it so that these kids really became the engines of change within their households. So there are challenges they can take. Again, they can prevail. It gives them a sense of purpose, sense of, of um, efficacy around it. But we also then found after the, so that we ran some randomized control trials, as I mentioned, 60% more movement than those kids who didn't have Zamzi. So fantastic results. But for me, what was more exciting is then we went back into the households where, the, where um, these um, pilots were taking place. And what we found was that the whole family was moving more, particularly the moms, other siblings. Everybody was, was moving about more as a result of that instigator of change in the household. So we hadn't necessarily set out to determine what the social network would be that would create, again, this sort of virtuous system. But it does get created when you, when you build in opportunities for that kind of thing to happen. And you can do, either do that with the technology itself, design it into the technology, or design it into the experiences that the technology incents. And, and I, would, I would pursue both of those opportunities because it's so context-specific. In the moment, you don't necessarily know where the connection will come from that will be meaningful when somebody's feeling nauseous or when somebody needs help with their meds and the like. We have learned a lot about people interactions. So we enable people to engage with other patients as well as invite their own family and friends. So it was obvious to me when I was uh, first designing this tool that, of course, I want to engage my family. But we noticed that, again, on the first trial on on, uh, heart failure, none of them were inviting their kids. Mm And every kid we interviewed, they said, I really want to know what's happening to my parent. So we asked them, and they said, no, my kids have too many things to do. I don't want them to worry about it. Mm -hmm. But they would invite their neighbor. They would invite their friends. (laughs) Then we put them in touch with other patients and soon noticed that they were forming their own microcosm of discussions. Mm well, I have this kind of side effect, so they had their own microcosm of discussion going on around that topic. We have a big, giant Fitbit club on our <laughs> diabetes uh, mm. uh, management 
They are encouraging each other. I walked this many steps. I walked that much. They have competitions going on. <laughs> so, again, we have to enable them to form their own communities yeah. and discuss things in their own community. There is not one single community, and each person is going to be driven towards another one. So, again, technology shouldn't be on the way. It should be an enabler of these kind of discussions and let them drive their own where what we haven't done would be really interesting is now take all this data and, and analyze and understand the tendency of each patient on what they want to do, what they want to do, don't want to do, and who are they engaging, why are they engaging those people and not the others. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Well, I think we are going to go to the audience now for some questions. Uh, the gentleman in the second row. Hi, my name is Stanley Fair, UCSD Osher Institute. Uh, there was a comment made today and the other day, or it was yesterday, uh, regarding uh, the doctors spend a lot of time on computers. You mm-hmm. mentioned 20%. Uh, yes, they spend that 20% on a computer either with the patient or afterwards. In the old days, the doctor sat down and wrote all his notes out, mm-hmm. or he or she afterwards went, wrote all the notes out. That took more, and then when they met with you, they would spend so much time reviewing all their old notes. Here with the computer, they're able to see your entire history of your last visit, or especially if you're at UCSD or Scripps, they could see what's going on with all your doctors. Or what is good. Isn't that much better than the paper trail that, which they kept before? Can and, I take that one? Please, That's yeah. a great question, by the way. And the, the short answer is... When I'm writing stuff down with paper and pencil, that I used to do, I was around before that confounded EMR, <laughs> um, is I was writing down what was relevant to me and you, about you. And, and granted, it wasn't stored in a, in a sliceable, diceable way. Now what happens is because of all this regulation coming down, I have to check 99 checkboxes that I wouldn't have otherwise had to check because they're in front of me and I can't get to the next screen to, to, to get to the thing. So what happens is it creates all these barriers. And it's because of either um, payment. Again, it's a cash register, but so it filters all your stuff. And it's also for liability reasons and documentation reasons. So, yes, it's good. <clears throat> um, I mean, yes, it's, it, it's, it's good. There are good things in it. I mean, my dream, by the way, my vision of the future for the doctor or patient visit is, I don't know, they haven't invented it yet, but um, some type of watch or glasses that records the entire conversation. Everything that I say, everything that you say, and when I'm dictating and when I'm touching you and doing my exam, like a dental person has their assistant, I talk into the thing. It documents everything via transcription. I think we're going back to transcription, by the way. And then when we're done, we're done. And it all gets through a parse through a natural language processor into the various fields, and I can just look at people directly in the eyes and never have to look at anything again. I think that's where the future's going. I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but that's my dream. So, uh, I think it's a, a you know, another way of looking at it is a usability issue. So it was a, a term used uh, this morning about over-engineering, how the, I think it was the professor from Indiana was talking about how they over-engineer and the doc says, I don't need all that, just, just get this there. So there's that disconnect between the, the technology people who are designing this and the end user, um, and it's clunky and it doesn't work well, but it could be better. But we, we need to have that dialogue um, happen. In, in an ideal state, uh, and we're not that far away from it, I mean, when I walk in to see a patient, 
You're right. I've opened the chart. I've looked at the labs. I've looked at the, the x-ray reports. I've looked at all the other doctor's notes who've, who've been there because I'm an integrated system. Uh, I don't have to ask the patient a thousand questions. I mean, I know what's going on. In, in an ideal world, the patient would be informed too. And they would have gone online. They would have gotten the tools at either a trusted website, as someone mentioned yesterday, or, or our own website or the information you know, that Jordan says you provide them. So everybody's coming in there prepared to have the serious talk and not have to type and transcribe and write those kind of things down. I mean, that's the, the future we have to, to be thinking of and driving towards. You know, there's something, I guess it's a fabulous question, because I think there's something else that's very subtle that, it's play, that is at play in these interactions. But um, as the, the practitioners themselves are... Uh, becoming acquainted with an electronic me- medical record system, particularly as they're shifting all the time, you're often in an experience where you're meeting with your physician, the physician's trying to deal with technology that, it, that to varying degrees is annoying them. And so they're being annoyed at te- te- the technology, which you are experiencing, you're experiencing that emotion as they're trying to interact with you. So even if there's no difference in the amount of time it's taking, the actual um, emotion that gets generated because of that mediating influence, I actually believe has an effect on the experience that, that, the, that the patient has. Now, I actually also think it's just a matter of time until that, that over time will begin to resolve itself. The technology will get more sophisticated. But in this transition period, I actually think it's problematic. It's problematic for the patient and it's problematic for the physician. They're no happier. And, and to the extent they're complaining about it, that also degrades the, the experience as well. Yeah, so I think it's, we're just in this kind of awkward stage right now of, of, uh, of movement, I think, into this space until there's more elegance with the technology. And my distillation of that is a happy doctor generally is a happy patient, and a grumpy doctor is probably a grumpy patient. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of that simple. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my experience a happy doctor is always a happy not patient. Not always, but, but it is my the probability experience. is higher, I think. <laughs> Um, all right, let's go up to the balcony. Is this on? Oh, wow, we Hi. can't even see you. Yeah, sorry, okay. we're Well, hopefully you can hear my voice. Uh, my name is Bentley Adams. I'm from Incubate Health. Question, uh, doctor, you had brought up, I think, with uh, working with the informaticists around, you know, using a phone that has one for nausea or two for difficulty in breathing, et cetera, um, and developing these solutions into a choice architecture kind of to Dr. Shalane's point. I guess my question is, especially with the Affordable Care Act, um, how are you going to create solutions that appeal to a low socioeconomic demographic? And I didn't really hear too much about that, but I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts about that. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, it's come up several times in, in, in this meeting, this question of, of uh, someone earlier today, I think, said it, it didn't pan out, that there was initial bias that older folks wouldn't be able to adapt and uh, would have a, a disparity created by their and. And, and that it didn't happen, that older folks are just equally engaged. Um, uh, others, you know, say the cost of it. Uh, but then, you know, someone else said, well, everybody's got a cell phone, even people who you think have healthcare disparities. So if they have cell phones, then why can't we access it? Um, so I, 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 I think it is a real problem. Uh, it certainly should not prevent us from going ahead and, and introducing technology with the belief that technology gets cheaper and, and more affordable and easier to use as time goes by. So it's not a reason not to innovate. Um, but it is, it is a, a healthcare uh, disparity issue. Um, it, it's, it's part of a much larger uh, social issue. 
Um, I think it's not just uh, economics, too. The other thing that bothers me is that, that a lot of it is cultural. Uh, so you can be, uh, uh, you know, you could be uh, quite wealthy, have a lot of money, but uh, you don't speak English because uh, you came from Iraq because your children came here and they're engineers and, and you're culturally isolated uh, and, and don't have access for that reason, too. Uh, and so we need to figure out those communities that those people do interact in, even though it's not the traditional community, they're probably in a, in a church group or something that, that can be accessed through there. So it, it's, a, it's a complex social issue. Um, but really, HIT is a social issue. I mean, HIT is just a tool. Uh, how society decides to use that tool for what purposes um, is, the, is the real challenge. Yeah, and a comment I made earlier that I asked Deepak Chopra was, is that you know, we are all analog mammals at the end of the day, and we all have the same existential problems and fears, whether you're you know, in a, a deprived neighborhood and you're a vulnerable person or you're not. I mean, if we, anybody who has pain wants it to go away. Anybody that has mm-hmm. nausea wants it to go away. And I could list all the symptoms that if I said, hey, do you want that? I guarantee you nobody here wants that. So I think that these communities, I think it's more of a cultural issue. You've got to communicate them in a language that they're familiar with, and that language doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, you know, verbal language. It's whatever language, and I think that I think technology is trying to figure that out. Um, I mean, we have in our health loop thing, we have practices uh, that enroll people from all socioeconomic strata, and we haven't noticed a material difference in people wanting to get better faster. Right? I mean, that's kind of mm. the. We're mammals. We, we want that to... So I, I think that it's just a matter of time before we can break through some of these cultural barriers, which I think are the fundamental biggest issues in those neighborhoods. I also... I don't think we're doing nearly enough um, creatively in the development of text, the use of text. You know, we think of smartphones and delivery of apps more broadly and a lot of things on computers, but um, I think that text-based delivery of information and engagement... Uh, is becoming, I think, an increasingly powerful tool. And I think it's often overlooked because we jump to um, um, smartphone apps. And I, I think that's a, that's a place, I think, of um, really rich mining. Interesting. All right. Um, I think this will be our, our last question. Hi, my name is Joe Weiss, and I'm a physician, but more importantly, I'm also a patient and have been for many years. And I find it so frustrating as far as the communication with physicians and giving information to them and seeing the medical record after, which I request to see how often there's a mistake. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about an open medical record where the patient can comment, hopefully correct, mm-hmm. also ask questions, perhaps fill in the review of systems before the doctor sees it, so their questions and comments are addressed at the time of their visit? Mm-hmm. So, so <laughs> great question. Um, I'm all for it, by the way. I mean, just blanket, I'm all for that openness and transparency. There's a number of legal issues there that, that if you have followed this question in the bigger literature or conversations, it, it gets really sticky really quickly because the lawyers get involved. That's what usually happens. Um, but I do think this concept of flipping the clinic um, in the same way that Sal Khan flipped the classroom, which is, um, and Robert Wood Johnson had a thing that I attended in Princeton a few weeks ago, where wouldn't it be great if rather than do- uh, do- Dr. you coming in and saying, okay, I've reviewed all what other doctors have said. I reviewed all of this stuff that I know is true. I'm going to spend 80% of my time talking to you and finding out how you've been since I saw you last, and I'll spend 20% of my time then trying to communicate to you what you do next. I think what we need to do is flip that. I think I'd rather spend 20% of my time kind of, because I already know what's happened to you over the last two weeks, one month, and I could spend 80% of my time kind of talking about that with you and, and leave that open and let you continue to continuously opine, comment 
on your condition vis-a-vis this. I think we have to move this concept of episodic staccato care to a more high-resolution continuity of care. We talk about continuity of care, but we, we think that means one doctor should be involved with all the doctors, but I think continuity has another meaning, which is life doesn't happen every time there's a medical episode. It happens 99.9% of the time. You're outside of the, the medical system. So, you know, three things. Uh, one, uh, you know, by HIPAA, you have the Health Insurance Privacy and Portability Act. Uh, you have the legal right, all patients have legal right to see their medical record and to offer suggestions or corrections. Uh, doesn't mean, you know, you could be wrong, so it doesn't mean the doctor has to change it, but it goes on record. So that is there. What hasn't happened is it hasn't been enabled in the electronic fashion. So uh, while we have a, a, a patient portal where patients can see a lot of their stuff, um, they can't see the, the doctor's uh, notes, uh, let alone commented. They can ask for it to be printed, but they can't do it online. Um, and, and they should. Um, but... Um, the medical chart is a technical document. You're a physician, so you could understand it. But you could also understand that we use a lot of jargon. Uh, we use a lot of phraseology. It could be misinterpreted. And uh, it seems to me a disservice to give that to patients without guiding as to what it means because it can get completely mi- the wrong impression. So what we need, and we don't have, and I don't know how to do it, but, uh, but there needs to be a translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there needs to be some annotation or, or guidance to, to explain to the patient what, what it is. And, and I don't know how we do that in a way that's scalable. Um, but uh, right now, the medical records, you know, I think they have limited value because they're not designed to do that. I think there's a, actually a bigger issue. We enable patients to download medical records from multiple sources. And many times our patients come and say, these are conflicting information. And we say, yes, What can we do about it? There is not a single doctor who is in charge. Normally, it should be the primary care provider who reconciles. But medication reconciliation is a huge issue, even when you're discharging a patient, with specialists looking at it. So it's not something we can solve. All we can do is identify very visible conflicts. We had a patient who had a cardiologist at UCSD, but primary care provider was uh, outside UCSD. And when we enabled both of them to see the same information, they saw that the patient was taking the same medication twice a day because each of them had written, and he was getting two generics, two different colors. They didn't know it was the same medication. So there are a lot of these happening every day, but there is no easy way of reconciling these kind of medications, especially if you have... Doctors across multiple healthcare systems. You, which uh, most people do. I love your question both because you can wear the physician hat and you can wear the patient mm-hmm. hat. And um, I'm a huge. Yeah, <laughs> it's perfect. You can have a conversation back and forth with yourself. Um, You're well balanced and a whole person. Uh, I, I think we, we inevitably do better when these systems are deeply informed by the patient experience because ultimately the patient knows him or herself the best. So the ability to say, I mean, this is a great, this would be a great open source challenge. How would you design a patient wiki that, that would really be able to provide this kind of information and still leave the, the, the clinical record intact? And nonetheless, there's an annotated process where you could say, hey, what does this weird word mean? Or no, this wasn't what my blood pressure was. Or, and that itself could be a place of rich conversation with a clinician. But, but I think fundamentally we are, we are really scared to invite patient control in, you know, we talk about being patient-centric, and it, it's, we are very scared of it. This is, this is a, I believe this is an issue that could be resolved 
um, relatively elegantly with technology. I don't think technology is the challenge here. I think it's who wants to control the information. Well, that is, um, I would love to talk about that more, but unfortunately we are out of time. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.